I'm telling you, you need to experience at least one nuking in your life. And I think we're getting there after after this latest thing. Well, a good eclipse, a good nuking. <laughs> it, it seems like... If they could uh, do it on the same day. Yeah. That'd be great. I mean, the reality <laughs> is that the fate of the world now rests in the hands of two children. Uh, the leader of the United States and North Korea and... Uh, Fire and Fury. <laughs> Fire and Fury. <laughs> he sounds like a cartoon supervillain at this point. <laughs> uh, welcome back, guys. Good to be here. Yeah. It's it's just uh, it's the three of us again. How you doing, Phil? I'm good. That's oh. good. Is there any Fire and Fury in New Hampshire? No, well, there's, there, there's lots of... Lots of hand wringing over the fact that our president referred to New Hampshire as a drug-ridden, what was it, a drug-ridden den, a drug-infested den. Drug-infested den, yeah. yes. Yeah. We didn't like we didn't like that very much here. Yeah. Hey, you guys are back in the news. Just leave it alone. Right. Right. <laughs> I get some of the limelight. Um. I, let's start with the obvious. North um, Korea. Yeah. So we'll potential just nuclear war. Give the listeners a little preview. So there was so much positive feedback on speed round from oh, yes. last week. So we're going to do like we did last week. We'll do two uh, 10, 15 minute sessions on two big topics. We'll do North Korea and then talk about the leaks. And then we've got another speed round ready to go. Yes. You can leave those positive comments about these segments on our Facebook page uh, at Barstool Politics or on Twitter at Barstool Paul. Or uh, our, your email address, barstoolpolitics at yahoo.com. Um, and any negative comments you can just keep to yourself because none of us want to hear them. Um, not that you would have any anyways, but, you know, whatever. So <clears throat> start with North Korea. Yeah. Uh, and uh, some breaking news today, right? The, actually, a bunch of news about North Korea. One, uh, the Washington Post just this afternoon, so we're taping on Tuesday, uh, released uh, sort of inside intelligence uh, suggesting that the U.S. government is now fairly certain that North Korea has miniaturized a nuclear weapon, which they will then be able to put on the tip of an ICBM. And uh, basically what many people thought they were a year or two away at, uh, they now potentially have that capability. Yeah, I was a little surprised at that one. Yes. I was really thinking it was going to be several years for that to happen. I, I was just listening to a podcast. They're industrious people. They are. They are and Slave they're very, labor is a really efficient thing. And they are motivated. So, no, just this week I was listening to some nuclear experts talk about, oh, it's likely, uh, you know, a, a year at the earliest, two years more likely. So this is uh, accelerated. <clears throat> but at the same time, this has been, um, you know, I've, I've read some this in the last two weeks about North Korea and listened to a few podcasts in which they had North Korea experts, of which we are not. We should make clear, um, but okay. uh, talking about how uh, that, that the whole idea that they're a few years away, right? That they're a few years away from having deliverable nuclear weapons or whatever has been the thought on North Korea for like ten years now. Right, right? Yeah, right. So we keep thinking we're a few years away, but if you think that for a decade or a decade and a half, those those few years are gone, right? And here here we are. Well, you have to be strategically patient about these things, Phil. Right, right. Well, and then the other thing is, before this news about the miniaturized nuclear weapon broke, this was a good week for Trump on North Korea. Yeah. So the, the UN Security Council passed uh, what everybody's uh, suggesting is the most stringent sanctions regime on North Korea. Unanimously. Yes. Uh, both China was on board, uh, Russia was on board, and this had the potential to squeeze North Korea in a way that I, I don't think would stop them from pursuing nuclear weapons. But this was a real deal in the fact, like you said, that... 
China and Russia are on board. I think we have to acknowledge this was a big victory foreign policy-wise for the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. For sure. Probably his most significant foreign policy victory of his presidency so far, right? I I think he said said of any president ever. Ever, ever. Except except Lincoln. Except Lincoln. He always (laughs) defers to Lincoln. (laughs) He did say, so he tweeted, he was very active on the Twitter today. He said, after 200 days, rarely has any administration achieved what we have achieved. Not even close. Don't believe fake news suppression polls, right? I mean, so he's... Positive reinforcement. Yeah. It's just going to get better if he keeps doing shit like that. It's insane. <laughs> All right. So it was it was shaping up to be a really good week for Trump on North Korea. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Yeah. wait can we go back for just a second? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I have not read um, uh, much in terms of, like, inside accounts, partly just because I haven't, I haven't been paying that close of attention this week. But I haven't read that many... In, uh, inside accounts or detailed accounts of how these sanctions came about. And I'm sort of surprised, right? Because this is a big win, but it's coming from the Trump administration, which essentially has no State Department, right? Yeah. How did this happen? Like, how, what's your perception? Was was this Trump's thing? Was this something that emerged from, like, bureaucratic career government people and Trump's just taking credit for it? Like, how, I'm, I'm sort of shocked that a success like this came out of the Trump administration. What do you make of that? I think it's got Jared's fingerprints all over it. (laughs) (laughs) I would think this is, again, I don't think Trump had hardly anything to do with this. Although I guess we could say his bullying, maybe his bullying of China had some impact. I'm a little skeptical of that. But this has to be a good day for Nikki Haley and Rex Tillerson, who've had a rough couple months. I thought he was asleep. <laughs> yeah, they, they woke him up for the actual event. Oh, okay. um, yeah, no, I think those two, I'm guessing, were working China. And I also wonder whether, I mean, China is not happy with North Korea's behavior. Uh, and so you wonder whether they finally have gotten to the point now where this is becoming an issue where they felt like it's time to push back. They will still be the one that implements most of this because most of 90% of trade goes through China. So if they right. choose not to enforce this, they can give themselves some wiggle room. But just the fact that they supported this, they've been somewhat critical of, actually fairly critical of North Korea in the, the Chinese, Chinese state press, right? So I, I think that maybe more than the Trump administration, this was China making a shift. But it's, it's a great question, right, Phil? Who's, who in the Trump administration deserves credit for this? Yeah. Okay, you can continue now. I just want <laughs> Okay. Well, so this isn't really, I, mean, I don't know if this, well, I think it's news, but so after this news was released uh, about the miniaturized nuclear weapon. Actually, I'm not sure when it came out, but uh, the North Korean regime threatened the United States, uh, and Donald Trump responded by threatening uh, that that North Korea will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power the likes of which the world has never seen. I've got the clip, Nick. (laughs) Please please do it. All right, here we go. Uh, Our high-tech setup here. It's coming soon. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening uh, beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power the likes of which this world has never seen before. I like that. We've seen some pretty fucked up stuff. (laughs) 
Right. I'm really curious about that. That's that's terrifying, Phil. Right? That's. I mean, we should be terrified by that comment. Yes. On on a <laughs> on a minor level, we should be terrified that the president says things like "best not." <laughs> they best <laughs> not do this. <laughs> but on a much bigger level, we should be terrified. Yeah. That that. I mean, this. Like, I, that that's exactly what North Korea leadership wants, right? Like, in my mind, this plays into their hands, right? I, I mean, I don't I, like. It doesn't seem. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like a strange response to to come out and go straight to. I mean, I, I get like pressure and containment and all of this stuff, but to go straight to threatening fire and and fury is um yeah that's the, scary the likes we've never seen before right i mean so does this mean is this a nuclear weapon is this a i mean he's he's saying that we are going to use force violence right this is a we're talking about a military response here the likes we we've seen atomic bombs nick yes yes we have here's <laughs> But we should point out much smaller atomic bombs than yes. like the right. So when people picture atomic bombs, they think Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Those are tiny compared to what we're yes. talking about. Um, the U.S. Oh, that, deploying. That's the fire and the fury, Phil. <laughs> right. so, like this is. So here's my. Go no, ahead, Nick, no go, go ahead, Phil. Here's my problem with the logic of this, right? So what he's basically saying is, if you don't quit, we're gonna nuke the hell out of you, right? Which implies a belief that deterrence works. Yes. Right. Right. I mean, the, right. The whole idea is we're telling you if you don't do something, we're gonna nuke the hell out of you, right? But if if deterrence works, then you don't need this sort of inflamed rhetoric, right? The 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 threat is already there. We've already made clear to North Korea, you know, if you you know you can have you can have uh, you know if you work towards nuclear weapons, you know, if you ever take a step towards using them, you will be obliterated off the face of the earth. So it's, it seems like Trump believes that deterrence doesn't work, which is why he's stressed, you know, stepping up, possibly attacking them and all of this stuff. But his rhetoric is very much a deterrent type rhetoric. I feel like that was confusing what I just said, but, well, no. <laughs> but it seems to me like the logic <laughs> is not terribly consistent in what Trump is saying, right? And the other thing is he's not, he's, his response, so the response, the fire and fury is not in response to if North Korea launches an attack on us, it's if they continue to threaten us. That's they best different. not do that. Right. So if they if they are threatening us, then they get the fire and the fury. Mm -hmm. Whereas you know conventional deterrence rests on the idea that North Korea is not going to launch their nuclear weapons against us because they know we would respond. That that's there. But if he's saying if you even threaten us, fire and fury. I I I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. What, yeah. I, I mean the way that I look at it is the the doctrine that we have have had had in place with North Korea is very antiseptic and just kind of hands off and you know don't push the what animals is it again over there uh, is it a wolverine koala or bear? something no. pandas Walla pandas <laughs> I don't think they have pandas <laughs> I don't whatever know uh, rabid what, feral dogs what I don't the, know whatever. what is the animal for strategic patience yes no but <laughs> regardless it's like sorry Nick. no I don't give a shit um like clearly, I, I mean, this this rhetoric that we've seen from North Korea has continued, and we have just worked under the assumption or the the manner that we just either ignore it or we try and do something with the international community that kind of keeps them out of the process entirely yeah. and doesn't necessarily address them head on. This rhetoric that he's saying is exactly what Kim Jong Un would be saying and has said to yeah, us. Yes. Right. So. 
we've never seen what the response to that kind of doctrine would be. It's Kim Jong-un squared, right? right. You now have right. two Kim Jong-uns. So who's yeah. going to, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 and I mean, it, it sounds dumb, but I'm kind of curious to see what would happen. And if it's effective... <laughs> Like this is terrifying. <laughs> no, no, you're right. There, yeah, there is there is some irony in that statement, right? That that Trump is saying, if you don't quit threatening us, we will destroy you. <laughs> right. right. But but yeah, I think you're right. I mean, to some extent, Nick, there there is. I think you're right. There is sort of a high risk, high reward, right? Like, right. I mean, there's the chance that a madman, right? You, you, Trump's basically saying, oh, you you know, you threaten us and we will nuke you. And because Trump is sort of unpredictable and a little crazy, there is some credibility to that threat. Like, because the reason why you're terrified, Bill, yeah. is because you think Trump might do it, right? Right. <laughs> like, right. Well, and and so, um, <laughs> so there, there is this interesting question of it. There's a chance it could work, which is the possible high reward. The high risk is that there's a chance that it actually provokes a nuclear war. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> what What are the odds, or what is the chance that Trump ran this by Mattis, Tillerson, his fire and fury comments? Do you think they got any word of that, or do you think they heard this at the press conference and are freaking out about it? Right? Did, did you think he goes up and he says, "I'm going with fire and fury"? Because he said it twice in the press conference. Right. It was clearly a planned phrase. Right. Yeah. Like this was his his phrase but whether that came from I, I if i had to place bets i would put a lot more money on that phrase coming from stephen miller than from yes uh, than from you know yes. anyone in the state department or nsa or something that's, like that's that that's miller yeah. or steve bannon fire and yeah. fury and again again this is again stupid but the, he ends that statement again with thank you <laughs> why does he do that why does he always say thank you uh, oh no it, <laughs> I, I I don't know. I I think it'll be I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens if there is because I, I you have a, a a real chance to bring in other actors like China and Russia who also see this absolutely insane behavior and go oh okay hold on we can't have that yeah. happen yeah. at all so let's just nip this in the bud right now we're gonna put these sanctions in place yeah. and stranglehold them as much as we can. Trump I, I think I think you're right. I think the craziness has is more likely to like the, the fear that trump is unpredictable is more likely to have an impact on russian and chinese actors than north korean actors sure. but but might very well have a big impact on how the world approaches north korea correct absolutely we've taken so they always talk about our thank you <laughs> scholars you have been dubbed our north korea expert now. <laughs> scholars always talk about the madman theory and apply it to nixon right and and every once in a while they apply it to George W. Bush, but I didn't think that was particularly useful. But now Trump has taken the madman theory of foreign policy to his to like a whole new level. He's Kim Jong un that, you know, that to the point where you're right, North Korea is Nixon probably going... napalmed an entire fucking country. That was pretty fucking crazy. <laughs> right. the Wait, just for those who might not know, what, what do you, when you say the madman theory of foreign policy, what are you talking about? So the idea that you could use, uh, it's useful to have your enemies believe that the leader is crazy. So this, yeah, this is a great, great point. Uh, Nixon and Kissinger during the administration, uh, Kissinger would oftentimes tell other foreign uh, ministers to say, Nixon's crazy, I can't control the guy, I have no idea what he's going to do, strategically, to to soften that other position from the other side. If the other side thinks the president of the United States is literally a crazy person and might bomb or nuke somebody else, they are likely to change their perspective and how they engage the United States. And again, I do not want to give Donald Trump any credit for like long-term strategic thinking, but 
this may have the effect where China's like, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. uh, time to reign in North Korea. And maybe even North Korea says this. He's, he's, <laughs> he's too much. All right, dude. Man- Sorry, man- you man- win. <laughs> we blinked. The, the madman theory might be accurate without Trump choosing. Like, he's right. not so strategically thinking, I'm going to employ the madman theory. Right. <laughs> so I hope that over the next couple days, the threats are tamped down and we get back to like the normal conversation about strategic balance of power and the fact that you know ultimately even if North Korea has an ICBM with a nuclear weapon on it it's not going to change their incentive to launch that weapon same thing with the United States I mean I, I do think this is stable unless other things trigger an escalation right so for the reality of it I think this is a point you've made over many episodes Nick, I know. That this is not a this is not a big deal unless we lose sight of that right right I, yeah, so, I, I, uh, go ahead, Phil. No, go ahead, go ahead. Um, and again, this is something that we've talked about ad nauseum. What is the strategic benefit of launching a nuclear weapon from North Korea? Nothing. Nothing. Right. So, And realistically, they're in such a predicament if they were going to launch a ground war, or something, they could never be effective in that situation anyways. Right. So calm the fuck down. Like, it's probably not going to happen. There, right. That's there good is advice. a strategic... There's a strategic benefit to having nuclear weapons. Of course. Um, but sure. there's not necessarily to launching one. Yeah, right. you're right. You're it's right. it's strategically beneficial if you keep your mouth shut and know that if we know that you have them, you know that we have them, and just everybody kind of does their own thing and, and stays out of each other's hair. Mattis that gets that. Mattis that gets that. Mean, North Korea gets that. Right. North Korea realizes they don't want to engage in the United States. Uh, the Secretary of Defense Mattis realizes the last thing the United States wants is a land war on Korea. Everybody, other than fire and fury, but all of that, all of that holds up and makes you feel okay and sleep well at night and all of that. If you buy into the to the idea that political actors are rational, and and I think we can, you know, maybe assume that largely they are, but it doesn't take into account the fact that there are misperceptions and egos and all these other weird things in it. Like we have come really close to nuclear war with Russia, and and it's rationally and strategically stupid right but we still get there and that's my fear especially when you factor it i don't i don't really think that trump is eager to use nuclear weapons but i do think the north korea um the north korea situation fits really well and it fits in a familiar niche for him which is this sort of antagonistic it's it's the same thing he has going with the media right it's simple it's easy to like point at them and, you know, say, talk about fire and fury or whatever. Um, Not that he's necessarily intending to escalate. It just kind of fits his pattern. It's, you know, it's an easy enemy to take on. Um, But when you inflame the rhetoric, that's when you get, you know, North Korea feeling like, oh, we've been challenged. We have to back up our threats. And you end up through rationality, ending up in these crazy places. And you're absolutely right. Historically, we've come close to nuclear war many times with rational experts in foreign policy what you know whether we're talking about Reagan and Gorbachev or JFK and Khrushchev like individuals who wanted to avoid these things and now we're basing this on Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump right I mean this I think you're you're right that it should hold as long as the leaders behave rationally and we are testing that theory with these two individuals. Well, it's the leaders beyond the leaders and the institutions that should be keeping them in check. Realistically, you can have all the rhetoric you want, at least on our end, right? and you probably won't get to that point. I don't know what's going to happen on the other end, but I, 
Yeah. I, I don't know. It's I don't think it's as simple as as just the rhetoric that's coming out of these two fucking lunatics. But, no, that's right. No, I, but, I, but they matter. The lunatics of matter. Of course, they matter. Yeah. But. The lunatics matter, and the the I I with you, Nick, in that I traditionally would feel like okay, you know, even if Trump is crazy, the people around him and the institutions of the United States and the cultures and norms of the U.S. will keep him in check. But if anything, if I've learned anything over the last six months, it's that. Even when those hold up, they're not as strong as we thought they were a year right. ago, right? And so, sure. um, it's. I still feel like the odds of something going really badly wrong are really small, mm. but they're not as small as I would have said they were again a year or five years ago. Right, and I think that's an important point. So, all right, we should move on to our second topic. Sure. The Trump administration cracking down on leaks. So uh, last Friday, Jeff Sessions came out and gave this talk where he said the Justice Department uh, is pursuing multiple leaks. It appears three times the number of leaks that the Obama administration was look, had looked into. And the Obama administration set all kind of records for cracking down on leakers. Leakers. Uh, <laughs> So, and then Jeff Session gave this comment about, you know, that uh, he's very upset with all the leaks that are coming out, and this is terrible. Now, interestingly, Donald Trump previously had been criticizing Jeff Sessions via Twitter for not cracking down on the leaks. Uh, and while this is all occurring, uh, a major leak occurs where the conversation between Donald Trump and the president of Mexico, as well as the conversation between Donald Trump and the prime minister of Australia, are leaked. So... Gentlemen, what what are we thinking of all of this? Like, uh, you know, in terms of sessions pursuing this, uh, the conversations themselves, uh, leaks. Where are we at? So, I mean, there's two parts to this. There's multiple parts to this story, but it seems like there's two worth talking about. One of which is the attempt to crack down on it, and the other is the substance of the the leaks that came out. Yes. Do you have a preference as to which one we talk about first? Let me. No, I don't. You go. Go. I mean, so I think the, the fun... About, go ahead. Yeah. Let's talk about the attempt to crack down, because the, the content the content of the leaks is is humorous, and it'll be a nice way to end our discussion of okay. nuclear war and all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, so I, the, the point that I was really going to... To me, the, the attempt to use the justice to... I don't know. I, I really go back and forth on this, because I'm a strong believer in... Uh, the importance of whistleblower protections of the you know the the i think it's an important leaks play an important role at times in government i also understand the need of the government to contain leaks as yeah. much as possible so i really see both sides of it for me i mean it's a little concerning the extent to which they're taking it and the the extent to which the justice department and whatnot is going to use its powers to hunt this down but i also you know in in an attempt to uh, to make nick happy I, you can't you can't take this and you brought it up i was glad you brought it up bill you can't take this out of the context of what the obama administration did right i mean right. this was this is a trend that has been happening for a while and it didn't get talked about all that much the the harshness with which the obama administration um targeted leakers and so this is you know we talk about the importance of norms and how they evolve and how we run government this is an example of a norm that the change really began under Obama, and Trump is not, he, he's hes doing, what he's doing is of a different degree, but not of a different kind, right? Like he's doing um, very similar to what the Obama administration did. And Obama far too often gets a free pass for that, and that's always bothered me, the way that he cracked down on leakers. <clears throat> Nick. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with Phil in the sentiment that I think there needs to be protection for whistleblowers who are leaking information that deals specifically with the safety and security of the American people and the stability of the federal government. I don't think it's necessary for people to leak information, like him talking about why they crack down on boats or something like that in a conversation is completely unnecessary. Well, we'll talk boats, Nick. I hope so. <laughs> it, it just seems like a a concerted, systematic effort to, and strap in for this one, for, for the next few words that I'm going to say, uh, to undermine the credibility and stability of the administration as it stands right now. But I, there's no reason to leak that information whatsoever. It's not. It has nothing to do with Russia. Right. It has nothing to do with... You're talking about the phone calls. The I'm phone talking about calls. the phone calls, yes, yeah, absolutely. specifically. Um, nothing to do with an open investigation. Nothing to do with whatever other open investigation is happening right now. It's just, you're just trying to make him look stupid. And we know he's saying these things, right. but that's not, that's, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're taking the... Um, the purpose of whistleblowing and making it unnecessary and, and diluted. I think it's also important to note that the leaks, most of the leaks that are coming are coming from Trump people. Right. Right. Uh, I right. mean, so the, the far right is making this argument about the deep state, right? That these are Obama hangovers who are leaking all this material. But the reality and what a number of people in the media are suggesting is that, no, there are various camps within the Trump administration who are leaking on each other. That's fine. You're what? reporting on it, assholes. Well, well, but the, I think that, I don't know if you go after the media, although that's what Sessions did. I mean, Sessions basically said, I got a quote here from Sessions, we respect the important role that the press plays and will give them respect, but it is not unlimited. Uh, so I think they're, they're, I don't think anyone's going to argue that it's an undisciplined group that's working there that has little experience yeah. in these types of positions. But there is a cutoff point where this just doesn't need to be in the news. But who do you blame? Do you blame the media or the... Both. The Trump... <laughs> okay. Both. I blame everyone. Everyone's involved well, at this point. So to some extent, this goes back to Trump, right? In, this, in that this is a, a... It's a unique situation to the extent that I, I think mm. that... I mean, we could talk about like the lack of discipline within the administration and and whatnot, and bringing Kelly in, you know, as an attempt to sort of bring this in into line. He's fixed everything. But, <laughs> <laughs> but Trump also, it, it, and I, I've seen uh, a couple of stories along these lines in his six months in office. People close to him who talk about that if you want his attention, like the thing that gets his attention, is. TV coverage, yeah. right? It's it's Twitter, it's Fox, it's it's you know it's it, when the New York Times runs a story, and so there has been some level of uh, frustration within the administration of if, if you are or some sentiment within the administration that if you want Trump to pay attention to something, this is how you do it, right? Which which is a perverse incentive, but it's the idea that um, you know if you if you went to so in this case, I, I probably chose wrong. We probably should have talked about the content of the leaks of these phone calls. But so if you're unhappy with how pre the president is carrying out these calls or you want him to change his behavior in foreign policy, talking to him about it is going to get you nowhere. But leaking it to the press in a way that, you know, in some way 
gets the press talking negatively about some aspects of it, that is much more likely to change Trump's behavior, right? And so it's uh, it's this weird feedback loop. But you know, for the record, this morning he retweeted a story from Fox News about North Korea that was dealing with, I think, move, movement of ships. Uh, that used unnamed sources from within the government, right? I mean, so he is retweeting. I think you're spot on, Phil. Like he responds to that, so that is part of the the motivation of reach of directly connecting with Trump. But also, it suggests that there's these camps within the administration that are targeting each other. So, no, I, I uh, absolutely. Um, all right, so we should shift quickly to the content uh, or of the most recent link. Both the conversation, and this happened a long time ago. This very early, first couple well, of weeks. Yeah, it was like the first week of his presidency. Yeah, so he had these big conversations uh, with all these heads of state, including the president of Mexico and the prime minister of Australia. The content of those entire phone conversations was leaked to the Washington Post. They are worth listening to, or I'm sorry, reading in their entirety. Um, Do you have any of the quotes, by chance? Uh, I, actually, I, didn't, I, I should have had the quotes. Damn I don't it, have the quote. I will say... Uh, if we talk, we start with the conversation with the president of Mexico. He went on and on about the wall, and that he said the wall is essentially the least important thing to me, but politically it's very important. So he was asking the president of Mexico, just don't bring up the wall, and that you're not going to pay for it, because if you say that, then I have to say you're going to pay for it. And the president said, I can't do that, right? You know, this back and forth, back and forth, mm -hmm. which should be interesting to the base, the fact that Trump gets that he's only doing this for the base. He doesn't really care about the wall. He cares about the political implications of the wall. So I, I pulled, do you want to hear the quote? I can read part yes. of the quote. Yeah, yeah, please. We love quotes. The only, so yeah, so basically he's, he's, yeah. So the only thing I will ask you though, is on the wall, you and I both have a political problem. My people stand up and say, Mexico will pay for the wall. And your people probably say something in a similar but slightly different language. <laughs> slightly different language. But it's in quotation is, marks. It says right. Mexican accent. <laughs> but the fact is we're both in a little bit of a political bind because I have to have Mexico pay for the wall. I have to. I've been talking about it for a two-year period. So what I would like to recommend is if we're going to have continued dialogue, we will work out the wall. They're going to say, who is going to pay for the wall, Mr. President, to both of us? And we should both say, we will work it out. It will work out in the formula somehow, as opposed to you saying, we will not pay, and me saying, we will not pay. <laughs> we cannot say that anymore, because if you're going to say that Mexico is not going to pay for the wall, then I do not want to meet with you guys anymore, because I cannot live with that. <laughs> so he's, he's admitting that he knows that Mexico is not going to pay for it, but he needs Mexico to quit saying that. Yes. Which is a fairly sophisticated political argument. He gets that. Right. And the Mexican president says, I can't do that. Right? Yes. This is the this thing. This is the that... phone call in which he described New Hampshire as a drug-infested den. Awesome. Yes. This is a thing. And I, at least from my perspective, I'm under no illusions that every president ever, ever, ever has not had a similar conversation to this that may not sound as dumb as this, but the political implications and reasoning behind it are identical. And you have seen a number of Obama officials connected saying like, you can't leak these phone calls, right? This is this is inappropriate, right? That, right. that you need to give presidents the ability to work these dynamics out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. we, uh, we should point out in the context of leaks and talking about norms of leaking and whistleblowing, this is unprecedented, yes. right? Like the, yeah. the leaking of the actual transcripts of presidential phone calls is is unprecedented. This is, this is a big, 
thing. This is, yeah, and and not something that you, I, because you want a president to be able to have these sorts of direct phone calls Correct. in which yeah. they're not concerned about perceptions and the political cost. I mean, right. you want them to be concerned about the political cost of outcomes, but you know, you make you make deals. This is how you how you govern. Right. What are the chances that these phone the, these records were leaked by the three firings? Right. Uh, the Mooch. Priebus or Spicer, right? Or somebody connected with those individuals. Maybe they didn't do it, but I mean, it's it's pretty likely, right? That this comes, and again, given the unprecedented nature of this, uh, you think Spicer's not dropping some bombs here to say, I don't, I don't know, or the Mooch, the poor Mooch. The poor yeah, because mooch. this is one of those things, where we, I mean, we were talking about how a lot of the leaks from the Trump administration seem like an attempt to redirect the Trump administration or to focus the Trump administration in some way. This really does feel like sort of a screw you, right? Yes, yeah, <laughs> like, it does. like you were saying, yes. like it's really intended just to make Trump look stupid. Right. Yes. Speaking of which, let's real quickly hit on the Australian phone call. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, and this phone call, uh, it was a long phone call. It was the end of which Trump basically says, this is the worst phone call. I can't believe. And he denied that it ended that way. So this basically showed that he lied again. But that's no big deal. But much of it revolved around this deal that was worked out between the Obama administration and the Australians where the United States was going to accept 1,200 refugees who had gone to Australia via boat. And Australia has a policy where no refugees can come by a boat because it encourages uh, the black market illicit movement of people. And so Australia said nobody, no matter how deserving, can come refugees by a boat. And so the Australian Prime Minister is trying to explain this to Trump over and over and over <laughs> again. And Trump doesn't get it. He's like, oh, they're bad people. No, 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 no. They're very good people. They just came by boat. Why do you discriminate against boats, right? <laughs> you just, that that transcript is worth reading just to see how exhausted the Australian Prime Minister is with this inability of our president to understand that no, it's it's a policy. It's not the people. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, back and forth multiple times. Mm -hmm. Trump saying things like, I guarantee you these are bad people. I hate having to take these people. Right, if right. they're not bad people, why are they in prison? And the, pre right. the Prime Minister of Australia is saying they're not in prison. Right. <laughs> they're not bad people. They've been vetted. And yeah, well, he, and the, brought, Trump brought it back to the Boston Marathon bombing. And yes. I guarantee you they're going to end up being like the... the <laughs> They're not going to be. They're not going to be the local milk people, right? right. <laughs> that was local one of the phrases. Uh, yes. Who is this milk people? Well, <laughs> in New Hampshire, I think New Hampshire. Oh, I'm the, sorry. Yeah. The local milk people get they deliver your milk, your milk right? and drugs. Yeah, 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 lots right. of local milk people yes. there. Yeah. Well, and no, this, oh, that was that was bad. Yeah. <laughs> but the end of it, I, I don't think you mentioned this. The end of it, in which he basically hangs up on the prime minister. Mm -hmm is when he talks about how this phone call was the worst of the day. Yes. Uh, and the conversation and was Putin. about how, how Putin was a great phone call. Yes. Well, Putin so, was probably very direct and told him exactly what he wanted to hear. And now we're just going back and forth on boats. And I'm trying to make my point about the boats. And what's wrong with the boats? I don't like boats. <laughs> well, it even says something to the effect that, like, you're so mean. I love it. I wish I could be that mean. <laughs> No, it, it is, I don't know, these are, these, and part of me, well, I, I don't, I don't think these leaks should happen, right? This is, this is not, to your earlier point, Nick, this is not a useful, this is not a strategic leak. This is a, I'm going to poke you with this because whatever, something happened. So, right. this, yeah. And, well, yeah, this is, that's 
that's the thing. Like we, I, I think we're all working under the assumption that whatever discussions he's having are probably not the most enlightening and intelligent. But whoever comes after him, if we're setting a precedent now, that's a scary thing to do. And I frankly think the people who did leak this should be investigated. Like I, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I'm yeah. not going to disagree. I, I wouldn't disagree with you on that. Actually, point. no, I'm not sorry. No, yeah, don't don't be sorry. Fuck them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah these are classified. I mean, these are classified transcripts that are being leaked. So let me let me push on that a little bit. And I know that we, if we're sticking to our time limit, we should move on pretty soon. But I, I tend to agree in most circumstances that this is the sort of leak that uh, the government would be totally, you know. I, so. I, I think leaks are justified when they qualify under whistleblowers, right? There's something bad that's happening that the American people should know about, and so um, they're leaking the inform. Someone's leaking the information, um, even though that's a via, you know, it's been classified or whatever. This is not that, unless you view this as a larger picture in which, if if you're working within the Trump administration and you really think that Trump is not mentally fit or is not, you know, not intellectually fit for the job or is unstable or is in some way, you know, a, a larger threat to the, then this is sort of a, it makes Trump look silly, but does that, does it rise to, like, at what point does Trump's um, inconsistency or concerns about his, you know, his approach to foreign policy, at what point does that rise to whistleblower status? That's a fair point. If the if the intent of the leak, and, and that matters, and it depends whether the intent is, as you said, Phil, to show that the president is incapable of having these state-to-state -state conversations, that's one thing. If it's to what Nick and I were suggesting, if it is a political payback intent, that's different. Uh, yeah. No, it, it's embarrassing. And to, that, and to that extent, I would have been maybe more sympathetic if this had leaked the week after these phone calls had taken place, right? When right. they're leaking six months later, it... it it cast it in a slightly different light. Yeah, it's the mooch. The mooch is like, he's shit. The mooch. Yeah. The mooch had no. I didn't have access to any of those. This is this is Priebus or <laughs> or Spicer. Spicer. Yeah. yeah. It's all, it's almost certainly Priebus, right? You're right. <laughs> God. All right, Nick. We should talk beers, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I suppose we should. Phil, you want to start? Sure. So I had I had two beers tonight. My first one was. Um, Blue Point Brewing Company, which I've never I've never had one of their beers before, um, and it's their toasted lager, which is an American style amber. I really like lagers. Um, I liked the flavor of that one. I'm going to hold off on my final vote on that because I'm going to tell you about my other one. My second one was the Sierra Nevada Sidecar. Um, it's an orange pale ale. Have you had this before? No. One of you? Yeah, it's a good one. <clears throat> yeah, it's good. Um, I, I liked the the Sidecar. I, I liked the flavor of both of them. Um, on both of them, I wish they both had a little more oomph or kick to them. I was yeah. saying before we went up there, the, the lager I really liked, but it, it just, I don't know, it felt like a, just a little watered down. And I wish if, if it were just a little, like distill that flavor, make it a little more pure, I'd be all on board. I'd give them both like three and a half stars. Three stars, three and a half stars, three something stars. like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did, you didn't water them down, did you? Uh, I, I did. Was I not supposed to add like half? I thought you mixed beer like half beer, half water. Before <laughs> no, you you're not supposed to use ice. <laughs> oh well, that could explain. It. <laughs> uh, all right. So Nick and I, uh, we sampled a couple beers. You want to start with this one? I don't even know what the hell it is. It's it's at, oh Milwaukee. Oh, it's from a, uh, Milwaukee Brewing Company. Out yeah. Of, shockingly enough, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I, I was up there. <laughs> <laughs> it's always out of convenience. Yes. 
Um, it was their Citron Saison, um, which was, I thought it was really, really good. It was kind of light, had a sweetness to it. Yes. Uh, very kind of carbonated. It, I was going to say thing, very carbonated, almost, not, not champagne-like, but I mean, it, it, I was going to say it was, it's drifting in that direction yeah. where it was champagne, champagne cocktails. kind of cocktail-y, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a end of the evening, a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was pretty good. So in our second beer, uh, we went back to Noon Whistle. So I, uh, Noon Whistle, they're coming out with so many new beers. Uh, I've never even heard of this before. Because I, I found it, Nick. <laughs> I, I, I was searching for new beers. This is their Arvo Tinny Australian Style Sparkling Ale in a 16-ounce can. This, for me, is fantastic. Really? And I could see how some people would not like this. For me... I like it a lot. Okay. <laughs> it's got a very kind of heavy hoppiness to yes. it. Yes. I, I, With a I, little sweet and a little, oh, see, a little like, sparkle, Nick. I feel like if I, if we had started with this and it would have gone to mm -hmm. the first one after that, it would have been better. But it's just, it's so heavy. Yeah. And just, I, I don't I, I'm not getting the sparkling thing. Oh. It's looking. Oh, I guess it's, it's sparkling on this side of the table, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's, it, no, it's not bad. It's just different. It's a different. Like I can see how this is one where some people will like and others won't. Uh, you know, but for me, this I loved it. It was fantastic. So yeah. yeah. We've only been able, now that we're doing this halfway through, we're only able to get through two. We'll try harder on that one. <laughs> That's right. Um, all right. Speed round. Speed round time. All right. Uh, so five minutes, gentlemen, and then when the when the uh, bell goes off, we move to the next topic. Topic number one: uh, the Republican Party has had a number of individuals out and vying for the 2020 presidential nomination. Go. <laughs> <laughs> You fucked up your bell. I did. I gotta get the bell going here. <laughs> we already started. The bell will ding at the end. So, all right, and I, I will say to the uh, so the story. There was a story by the New York Times talking about Ben Sass. Uh, of course, Mike Pence. Mike, Mike Pence, Pence has been traveling all over the place uh, and meeting with uh, fundraisers with all sorts of individuals. Uh, John Kasich uh, or Kasich from uh, oh he's from Ohio, right? Right. Yeah. John Kasich. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, also, very much uh, suggesting that he may run for president again, um, and uh, indicating that there might be a pushback on Trump for the 2020 presidential election. I don't. Uh, you don't think so? No, I don't. There's, there's no. I, I mean, whatever. We're, we haven't gotten to a nuclear war yet. We don't know what's going to happen with these investigations. Like, we have no idea what the next year is going to hold for this administration. And to already be talking about that is premature and stupid. Robert Mueller. Yeah. <laughs> you obviously don't live in New Hampshire. No, right? I don't. <laughs> no, sorry. I'm not a big yeah. drug person, per se, though. So. so I saw a poll today that came out that uh, Kasich, that was a, a question of if it were Kasich versus Trump in a Republican primary. And Kasich is up 12 points on Trump in New Hampshire. This is in New Hampshire. So, um, How many so electoral I, votes know, do you, does New Hampshire have? Three? Yeah. Do what? How many electoral votes does New Hampshire have? 
No, it doesn't matter. Were these the same polls that said <laughs> Hillary was going to run away with everything? primary, so we shaped the presidential race quite dramatically. Yeah. For whatever reason. Because, you know why? Because we're highly white and highly <laughs> <laughs> homogenous. And so right. we, we hold a certain place of prestige in the nation. Um, so, I, I, Nick, I agree with you in that it's insane to be talking about this this early. Um, at the same time, I would be sh so a, a, a primary challenge to a sitting president is is pretty rare, right? right. Um, I would be shocked if we didn't see a number of primary challengers to Trump. He's he's not just because of his lack of popularity, but because he falls so outside of what is traditionally understood to be kind of the Republican Party. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it does, someone like Kasich makes perfect sense, right? Who's this kind of more classic? I liked Republic Kasich. Guy. I was going to vote for Kasich. He's yeah, I mean, he's, he's certainly people will yell at me if I called him a moderate because he's you know more conservative on certain issues, but certainly by like today's Republican Party standards, he's pretty you know moderate. Sanity seems to qualify as moderate in the Republican <laughs> Party these days. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't make it doesn't surprise me at all to see that. And the the thing that I thought has been interesting about this is the extent to which Pence has has dramatically tried to play this story down. Yes, he tweeted. Yes, York Times. Yeah. yeah, he called he called the story in the New York Times fake news. Uh, and I and he I think he tweeted that out, which means he had to be tweeting basically at the president. That was the audience, right, uh, Mr. President? This is fake news. He's very smart. Yes, like he's. For, for the Game of Thrones people, he is the little finger of that of the the Trump administration. And I don't. Oh, yes, I'm, nobody's going to get that apparently. Right. <laughs> I can't blame Mike Pence. I think Mike Pence is strategic. He sees yes. the writing on the wall. Trump may make four years. He may make eight years. But if I'm Mike Pence, I'm thinking about all the different contingencies that may play out. Mm -hmm. And I'm laying. I'm talking with the Koch brothers. I'm talking to everybody. I'm starting raising money through PACs because of those potentials. So no. What's his play, what's his play here? Like what? So what's Mike Pence thinking in the sense of, uh, so a primary challenge to a president is rare. He's not going to do a, that. Pence isn't going to do a that. A vice president challenging his his president would right. be unheard of, right? right. His but play so, is strategic patience. Right. That's right. his strategy. Yeah, he's not going to challenge in the primary. He's he's wondering whether Trump steps down or is impeached. Right. I think that's what he's doing. Again, we're all guessing here. Run again. Yeah. If, he, if Trump says he was going to just not run mm. again. Right. Yeah. You know, Ben Sass and Cotton, these other guys may actually make, as you suggested, the primary challenge. But no, Pence, I think, is waiting or thinking about the possibility that Trump doesn't make uh, four years. And this is not a uncommon conversation among Republicans. The New York Times piece said they spoke with 75 Republicans at all levels who said, don't think he's going to make it. Right. Uh, and so you have to be proactive. It, it, doesn't his like desperate attempt to play this down go yes. against that argument to yes. some extent? Yes. I mean, it seems like the, the logical that if I'm Mike Pence, I go to Donald Trump and I say, yeah, I'm putting together a committee, but you know, just it's because, you know, if you decide you don't want to run again or, you know, it's thinking eight years down the road, I'm, don't, no big deal. Not yeah. like, this is not true. Right. I'm not doing it. I don't know. It's, I, it sounds, it, I, it sounds very similar to, to Joe Biden not that long ago, at least from my perspective. Well, and to circle back to an earlier point, Trump pays attention to Twitter. So right. you can't walk into his office and say, uh, you know, Mr. President, fake news, but you can, you can tweet at him. All right. The other interesting thing for me, and we only got eight seconds is that go uh you know if there is a primary challenge how are those people going to run against trump right we don't
We don't have time. <laughs> but, I mean, they, they can't get to the right of them. I, how do they run? Do they run on nationalism? Do they, where's the Republican Party at to be determined in the future? All right. Uh, second topic. The NRA this week uh, tweeted out or sent out a video at directly attacking the New York Times. Round two. I'm going to see if I can find that video. Uh, I have a video and then do the timer. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably that would be better. All right. The New York, uh, the NRA video attacking the New York Times. We the people have had it. We've had it with your narratives, your propaganda, your fake news. We've had it with your constant protection of your Democrat overlords, your refusal to acknowledge any truth that upsets the fragile construct that you believe is real life. And we've had it with so your far, pretentious so tone deaf assertion that you are in any way truth or fact-based journalism. Consider this the shot across your proverbial bow. We're going to fisk the New York Times and find out just what deep rich means to this old gray hag, this untrustworthy, dishonest rag that has subsisted on the welfare of mediocrity for one, two, three more decades. We're going to laser focus on your so-called honest pursuit of truth. In short, we're coming for you. <laughs> you were doing so well. And then, and then the wheels came off. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, that's my reaction. Is that this is shocking because the NRA is is basically buying now into like there are two camps. The Times is in one camp. We're in the other. No moderation. Uh, it is a shot across the proverbial bow. I don't think it's, it's that. So, it's mean, Nick. It's mean. You're right. It's mean. As a New York <laughs> Times subscriber, I found it mean. Oh. Why? It's not mean. It's a threat. Like I mean, this is the NRA using all of these like gun references. Like they've got a laser sight on you. It's a shot across the like that. That's that's insane. Hey, so like, far you I, haven't seen I, an NRA member take out members of Congress. So let's just put that out there real quick. But here's it is an interesting question, Phil. Like this is this is not is it insightful language? Yes. If I left that voicemail on your answering machine, if I said those exact words, Bill Muck, I've got a laser sight on you. This is a shot across the bow. We're coming for you. They would. That's a credible threat. Like they would arrest fisk? me for that. Fisk. I'd move. I'd move okay. to Texas, Phil. <laughs> no, it is. You know, legally. Here's what I would say. Legally, I think the NRA is safe, and I was having conversations with others this week about that, and many. A couple of legal experts I was talking to were saying that they were very strategic in how they said that, uh, but the intent, right, the is exactly what you suggested. They're trying to divide, draw a line, and scare people. The divisions are already there, and like realistically, if you talk to anyone at this point uh, that's even remotely conservative, this battle's already going on, and they feel like they're the ones that are in the minority, yeah. and they want to hear this kind of rhetoric. So like, this, we, this it's works. powerful stuff. Yeah, and you know, it, it'll it'll separate somewhat once you get to the more crazy rhetoric that we heard in the second half of that. But they're like it, the division is is already there, and if you want to ramp it up a little bit, this isn't going to do that much to kind of exacerbate a very serious problem that's already there. Nick, you've upset some New York Times I, subscribers and they they, they are going to write some letters, <laughs> so some, um, some letters Screw to the editor, yourself. some op-ed pieces. More of those Northeast liberals. <laughs> that's I, right. 
I, I, would, I mean, so I think it does matter. Like, I, I think that there are people out there who hear this and are like, hell yeah, I'm going to go shoot a reporter. Um, but I don't want to go like down, I don't want to necessarily go down that road. But what I do think is that this is like a good example. This is like, a, this is symptomatic of the problem that we have in this country, right? right? Which is that in that ad, there was not a single damn piece of policy discussion, right? The NRA is supposed to be an advocacy group that's advocating for gun rights. And that's great, do that. But at, like, there's nothing in there about gun rights. There's nothing in there about policies, or this is what we stand for, or here's the problems we have, or here's why we want this to see this done. It's just bullshit threats and rhetoric the whole way through. And this is like, I mean, this is a lot of what I think we're seeing in the political on on all sides. This is not a conservative only thing, but it's like this this the the I you know this like otherness. It's us versus them without actually wrestling with the issues and talking yeah. about how do we deal with, you know, how do we how do we protect some level of gun rights while protecting, you know, victims' rights and all these other things. None of that comes up. It's just a bunch of assholes at the New York Times and we'll kill you. Well, and it's important that they target the New York Times, not a clearly left of center, you know, MSNBC or something like that. They went out to the New York Times, and I, and I get that the New York Times editorial staff is left of center. But the New York Times coverage of Donald Trump is, you know, print journalism, right? When you think about the heyday of print journalism, I think what the Times is doing and what the Washington Post is doing is, is good work. And that's separate, and that, that firewall between the editorial and the news coverage is important, but this conflates that, right? And so suddenly you attack everything that the New York Times does, and for those supporters of Trump, it's not just that uh, you know the, the editorial page is, is liberal, it's that any attack on Trump in terms of print journalism is also fake news. And that's for me, that's dangerous. You go after Rachel Maddow, that's fine, right? I mean, she clearly is coming from a certain perspective, but the New York Times, it's a different a different angle. That's fine. If you look at the 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 print media, at least the um, the wall, as you yeah. put it, firewall, firewall, the firewall. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> between you know reporting the news and the editorial side of it, that's pretty blurred at this point. And the things that get the most traction are coming from the editorial side. It's not the just the description of the facts at this point it's the opinions of people coming from a left of center standpoint i disagree why <laughs> we don't have time sorry we're, we're out of time i'm sorry <laughs> i love speed round <laughs> all right topic number three uh mcmaster the national security advisor is under attack uh from breitbart and and not just breitbart but many others on the right phil you were going to introduce this for us yeah, so H.R. Uh, McMaster, um, the, this, we've talked about this in previous weeks, this divide in the Trump administration between the sort of the, 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 the Bannon wing and the Priebus wing, and Priebus can't be the, the standard bearer of the Priebus wing anymore, but sort of the, the sane, the adults in the room versus the more kind of, um, uh, I don't know, rhetoric-charged, right? Yes. <laughs> so, uh. So yeah, uh, McMaster has become the new target of the Bannon wing. So Bannon has kind of honed in on McMaster, Breitbart. Like within the last week, there has been a huge increase in the number of uh, people calling for Breitbart, for Breitbart, for Mc, uh, uh, McMaster. Take, take your time. <laughs> yes. It's all for those McMaster pilsners. To, to, to step down or to be fired. Um, and there's been a hashtag that's emerged and what I, the thing that I find fascinating, I mean, 
there's an interesting aspect, which is that McMaster has become the target of this. But there's another aspect of this, which is that um, there's been this huge increase in Russian bots on Twitter and other places that have taken up this fire McMaster hashtag. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, there's kind of all sorts of different elements within this that are that are playing out that are intriguing or fascinating. It really is. And, you know, you think about the, like you said, the adults in the room, the, the Kellys, the uh, McMasters, they're under pressure. Now, Trump came out and defended McMaster this week, right? I mean, so he clearly is trying to balance these two different wings, right? To, the Bannonites versus uh, the McMasters and Tillersons and Mattis. Uh, but what didn't get a ton of attention was how much pressure there was being put on McMaster, right? This was this was not coming through mainstream media, right? This was not, uh, this was Breitbart, but even other outlets, Infowars apparently had some, uh, oh, I can't think of the guy's name, from Russia attacking McMaster the last couple days, right? I mean, so this is a coordinated uh, attempt, and you wonder whether does this reach to Bannon and Stephen Miller in the White House, or is this something that has just taken root, where they're saying that McMaster, because he didn't go after uh, the previous National Security Advisor, Rice, and other things, that like, he's got to be gone, right? That's, that's, it's all important. It's got... It's got to go back to Bannon, right? I mean, like Bannon and McMaster have like butted heads over a policy on a number of issues. Yeah. And Bannon has, you know, he, he comes from Breitbart. Like he still very much has this network intact. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's got to start there. And I, I think it's not necessarily coordination because I think that there's lots of informal coordination, right? It's not that like Matt, that Bannon is arranging this, but Bannon like takes up this this line or Breitbart takes up this line and you see all of these other people sort of jump on board, right? It shows the power of, of some of these more kind of right-wing uh, journalism or they're not think yeah. tanks, but, but think centers, um, the, the ability of, for them to shape public opinion and these mass movements. They call those ministries of propaganda. Thank you. Right. Do what? I said they call those ministries of propaganda. Yes. Yes. And this is a big test for Trump. I wouldn't even say the Trump administration. This is a big test for Trump. Where does he lie? And there's been a lot of attention lately suggesting that, you know, the uh, John Kelly going to chief of staff and McMaster over at the National Security Council. And actually, it's important to note that when Kelly assumed this position, he allowed McMaster to fire a number of Bannonites uh, in the National Security Council who previously couldn't happen, right? So Priebus wasn't willing to do that. So this set off a lot of that reaction, right? So now Trump is really in the middle and we'll see whether he's capable of handling that or whether he simply punts, which could be really, really bad because now we have North Korea, we have Russia, we have other issues where you need a competent National Security Council. This is, this, this is a big, big deal for, for Trump. Do you, do you think it will be effective? Like I, McMaster's not going to resign, right? Like it's not going to work on McMaster, but will it work on Trump? It, the the pressure, the yeah. Fa the fact that he came out and said that he supported McMaster this week suggests to me that Kelly is having some influence, right? And I think we need to think about that, right? Uh, Kelly is very different than Ryan's Priebus. He's he's listening in on all phone calls, and he is apparently in Trump's ear, and he must be saying that what what McMaster is doing is good work. Otherwise, he would be getting the Sessions treatment, right? It's very different how Trump treated Jeff Sessions a couple weeks ago versus a tweet saying, you know, you're, you're doing a great job. I like you as National Security Advisor. But we'll see. Yeah, he, he also, 
said really nice things about Scaramucci two weeks before he fired him. So I'm sorry, who? <laughs> Who's that? The Mooch. <laughs> oh, I'm <it's> okay. Okay. <laughs> all right. Topic number four. We're going through these. So this is great. Um, all right. Venezuela. Um, all right. This is going to be a fucking two-minute conversation. <laughs> Hi. It's a clusterfuck. Well, I think that's exactly right. Venezuela. You know, Phil, before we went on air, you were saying, I'm not sure what has changed in the last week. No, nope, that's not what I said. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I said, fake news, fake news. The, the Venezuela area of my brain has added no new knowledge in the uh, last week. Oh, okay. It has more to do with me reading nothing about Venezuela and <laughs> nothing actually changed. Well, I, okay, so I, I, I read a few things, and, uh, well, it's, it's almost sad how terrible things are right it's now. It's awful. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the opposition has no more power, is not able to influence things. The daily life for Venezuelans, and unfortunately, you know, we're, with these speed rounds, we can't get into that. But you know, they're losing basically, you know, I think it's like 15 or 20 pounds. The average Venezuelan has lost since this crisis has taken place. It's a very specific metric. It is. <laughs> That's not happening in the den of New Hampshire, is it, Phil? You're not losing. Well, when you have the heroin, you tend to lose weight. Right. I would assume, <laughs> Phil. Comment. <laughs> I've lost a lot of weight since taking up heroin. Yes. But so a couple things that emerged out of Venezuela. Heroin we didn't talk <laughs> didn't talk about last time. One is just total economic mis mismanagement by the Maduro regime. Right? They they clearly have no ability to run a government. And then the other thing is to think about the collapse of oil prices, right? So there's two things that are hitting them. One, they have a totally incompetent government who's not at all worried about democracy. And the other thing is that they, they have no revenue, no money coming in. So this is only going to get worse. It's hard to worry about democracy when you're a socialist government. but um, I wouldn't even say socialist, right? I mean, at least Hugo Chavez, he cared about the poor. I mean, Hugo Chavez, like his approval ratings were high. I think Maduro, I thought it was like fifteen percent. Oh yeah, they yeah, don't it's, like him. It's, it's about fifty yeah. percent. So in the past week, uh, the government had one of their major military bases raided by quote unquote rebels in fatigues who stole a significant amount of rifles and grenades. And yes, so now it's getting violent. And then we have the Congressional Assembly. Uh, rewriting the Constitution to give more power to Maduro and his government. I, I, that's that's total, the extent of Total control. They right. can write whatever they want. So right. technically, they have more power than the president himself, right? right? I mean, realistically, it's that, been a while since we've had a good South American dictatorship in place, so yeah. it's it'll be it'll be interesting. Minus, you know, the death and carnage and, and people losing weight and whatnot. It, it, it is, and I don't know how it's going to get better anytime soon. Now, now maybe if there is, like, if within the military, if the military decides to move against Maduro, that's one thing. But it's it, that, I don't think it'll happen. It was a it was a minor segment of the military that was pushing. It was back, a very right? minor segment, yeah. and then they cracked down on the uh, people who were in support of whatever group decided to to take matters into their own hands. And yeah. I think a significant amount of people got killed. Or jailed, um, right? I mean, that's I, a yeah. thing. So, I, I mean, uh, yeah, journalism is non-existent at this point. There are uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of people in jail uh, uh, without cause, especially from uh, or uh, journalists specifically. Uh, it's it's a disaster. It's horrible. Well, and I think that, you know to go back to the New York Times. The New York Times is no longer in Venezuela. No. Right. So I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not getting my news anymore. But uh, no, it is. It, it's it's tragic, right? It shows how quickly. And 
it's important to point out that Venezuela was not a collapsing country five years ago, right? I mean, it was, it, it had oil revenues when oil prices were high, and say what you want about uh, Hugo Chavez, like, I, I didn't like him, but he was entertaining, he was charismatic, the people liked him, right? I mean, that, that was something, and, and he, he was could, the Trump dic- of South America. Right, and he, Dictatorship, he, dictatorship's always easier when but they're entertaining. A, right. yeah. But so Maduro is, so, is a terrible dictator, right? I mean, at least Hugo Chavez could go on TV for four hours and entertain people, like, but realistically, it's not a diversified economy. So regardless no. of whoever right. was in power, with oil prices being what they are now, there probably would have been some sort of major setback for them. Yes, but Chavez right. would have been better than this absolute catastrophe. Yes, probably. Now, there's well, probably a long list of people that would have been better. Right, right. Almost <laughs> anyone would have been better yes. than yes. Bill, you right. would have been better than this is the This is where the economic crisis opens the door for bad people to, you know, when you have these sort of dictatorial tendencies... An economic collapse opens the door to uh, these sorts of power grabs, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, economic collapse is always bad, but you would hope to have someone in place who uh, hopes to weather the storm through democratic means rather than by rewriting the Constitution. Yeah, that's Absolutely. an excellent way to finish up, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Hit that post. Yes. All right, final topic uh, sanctuary cities. Right. Uh, you can handle this in five minutes. What yeah, else? No, this will be a short one, I think. Um, no, so the, the news uh, coming out this past week is that Chicago is suing the federal government because they're, uh, they are considering withholding uh, federal funding for um, cities who claim to be sanctuary cities, um, Chicago being on the top of that list at this point. Yeah. Um, I think the price for Chicago was somewhere between 3 and $4 million dollars. Mm. Um, just initially. So I have no sympathy. Withhold all you want. That's my contribution. Thank you. <laughs> what, so there, there's an interesting, what, there, what's, do you know what the legal argument is? Because I've heard, I'm trying to remember, I've read before the cities say that the Trump, the Congress gets to make funding decisions and not the executive, right? That's, right. The, that's the argument, that right. it's a separation of powers thing. You know, for, for me, I am sympathetic to the argument that Chicago is making. But legally, I think they're wrong, right? I mean, there are, there's a distinction between the federal and the state. Yeah. And whether, while I'm sympathetic to the idea that, you know, we should be protecting individuals who have come, and I, I'm not excited about the idea of the federal government coming in and rounding up and, you know, uh, expelling people, I think legally they're in trouble in this case. Mm-hmm. So, so th- this, this topic brings up, like it, it feeds back to several things we've talked about. One of which is we talked about last week, this whole states' rights issue, right? Yes. In which liberals are now clinging to this idea that state and local you know, <laughs> yeah. cities Hilarious. have this you know, power against the federal government. But this also takes me back to um, Peter, right? Peter Rice, yeah. Right? Yeah, our right, author right. that we had on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was talking about um, this, to me, seems like an example of a, a case where there's a good argument to be made on the liberal side that liberals aren't making, right? right? The argument that gets made is that people are being intolerant and they hate Mexicans, um, which isn't doesn't win anyone over, right? If you tell someone who's opposed to sanctuary cities that they're just racist, you're right. not winning that argument. Correct. Um, it, it might be true in some cases, but it's not a way to win the argument. There are there are very real argument, real very real arguments to be made about 
And, and you hear them coming from local law enforcement about how this actually makes law enforcement harder um, as, because people don't want to call in crimes to uh, uh, local law enforcement if they fear they're going to be deported and all of these things. That seems like that's the place we need to be talking about. We need to be talking about how, you know, what do these sorts of rules at the federal level, what implications do they have at local levels? Are they good? Are they bad? And let's have that discussion. And, and I feel like you're not hearing that from the liberal side as often. I mean, you do hear it, but not as often as you should, right? It gets framed in the we're wrong, we're right, and you're a bad person um, without actually getting into the reasons why sanctuary cities are, you know, why they want to protect um, uh, undocumented um, people in their cities. And we may say that, see this play out in both a political and legal argument where politically, if the Democrats or liberals embrace that argument that you were suggesting, like that has some legs, especially within cities. But legally, that's a whole nother argument, right? And that's why Rahm's decision, Rahm Emanuel's decision to say, I'm gonna pursue this legally, was a curious one, right? Uh, and <clears throat> yeah. they must think that they have some traction here. This will be a great topic. So next week, uh, uh, Tom Cavanaugh is coming back. So we're going to talk about a lot of legal issues. This might be a good one to bring up in terms of picking his brain about whether there is a legal argument for the city of Chicago. And, and Rahm Emanuel in Chicago are not alone, right? There are multiple cities that want to make this. It's just that Chicago might be the first one to push it. Um, I'm surprised. I, I, I mean, being, you know, outside of Chicago, but you know, knowing Chicago, I was surprised that they were the first ones to do this, to be perfectly honest. You assume, like, San Francisco, L.A., um, those two. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> most, most big cities. I, I mean, I know. So I, due to my uh, just being outside of Boston, this has been a big issue in Boston. Houston. So following Texas news, Houston and Dallas have both been yeah. like in conservative areas. Right. Basically, you have city officials coming out and saying that this, you know, these crackdowns are, are problematic for local law enforcement. But how much of this and I'm just going to be the cynical ass that I am to uh, to an even higher degree right now. How much of that is because we uh um, not we, but uh, that those particular urban centers rely on these populations at significantly lower salaries and with fewer, fewer or no benefits compared to American citizens. That's the question that I have. That's a good question, Nick. I know. Really, <laughs> <laughs> no one wanted to answer it within there's the allotted a, time. There's a really long and interesting. Or maybe not that interesting. I don't know. It feels like a long and interesting conversation that we could have about um, sanctuary cities. I'm, yeah. I'm glad we limited it to five minutes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We can bring, that's one we can bring up again. We'll find more intelligent yeah. people to talk about. That's that. right. Yeah. Um, can we talk about this thing? I real think quick? we need to. So did you can... have a third beer, Phil, or no? Or did I did you just not have, have a third two? beer. Okay. I just polished off my sidecar. Okay. okay. So Nick and I have started a third beer. So I don't even know how to say it. I, I assume it's Eins Einstock Einstoke. Yeah. Yes, yes. Right. Sounds good. From, um, from? From Iceland. Yes. Yeah. Icelandic wee heavy. <laughs> oh, it's a wee heavy. And then there's a lot of consonants and um, uh, Scottish <laughs> ale brewed with angelica root and smoked Icelandic barley. I, Where I, the wow. hell did you find an Icelandic beer? I don't know. It'll <laughs> put some hair on your chest, though, Phil. <laughs> my, my, my wife's uncle 
uh, came up this weekend and brought me two of them. Uh, and so, Nick, when you look at that beer in the glass, it doesn't look. It good. looks like Coke. It looks yeah. wee heavy. That's what it, it looks, looks wee heavy. So for me, this was a bit wee heavy, but you said it's growing on you. It's growing on yeah. me, and I think that's just my my heritage. But yeah. um, no, it like it gets. I feel like it's getting sweeter and kind of. Uh, hold on. Yeah. It almost has kind of a uh, a licoricey kind of taste it to it. It does. It does. Yeah. Yes. Um, Sounds terrible. <laughs> it's not. It's not bad. If you ever had, um, uh, it's almost like a a less sweet, um, not your father's root beer, and oh, less carbonated. Yeah. Yeah. I can, um, I can see that. Yeah. I I'm kind of liking it. It is a it is a distinct beer. I would have another noon whistle, um, and you can have the rest of my Icelandic wee heavy. All right then. Um, yeah, I, I, I we we covered a lot. We did the speed rounds. The fans love them. We love them. Yeah, they, I I, I kind of like the format. Yeah, I keep that going forward. Uh, you know, just, as I mentioned, this next week we're gonna have uh, Professor Tom Cavanaugh back, and and so if you have questions, legal questions. Send them to us uh, via Facebook, Twitter, the email. Uh, we're going to talk about some Supreme Court cases. We're going to really weigh into the uh, Robert Mueller indictment issue. Within our five-minute time period. Though. Yes, right, right. <laughs> uh, so it, sh it should be fun. Another question. We felt like we didn't fully explore all the legal intricacies last time. Yes. Um, yeah, if you like the podcast, uh, go to iTunes. You can find us on there. Uh, you can find us on SoundCloud as well. Um, rate us on iTunes. That's how we get more traction on those things, however their algorithms and robots work. Um, find us on uh, Facebook again, uh, at Barstool Politics. Twitter, uh, at Barstool Paul. Um, uh, email address is at Barstool, uh, not at Barstool, uh, Barstool Politics at Yahoo.com. Yep. Uh, beer suggestions, topic suggestions, questions that you want us to bring up, uh, anything realistically. Uh, you can find our beers on, we'll probably put them on the Facebook page again, but you can find all of them on the uh, Untapped app that you can get off of the App Store uh, with our ratings on that. Um, anything else that I'm missing? You got it all. Okay, good. Good I'm coverage. really glad I remembered yeah. everything. Uh, Phil, anything else from you? Nope. Okay. Cheers. Well, we'll see you next week. Then. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs>